What a great reminder when you get dropped into a mess. If you've been with us, we've been uh, working our way through 1 Corinthians. We're in the first six chapters, which is a, a segment sort of in and of itself, certainly attached to the rest of the book. But we have seen uh, in these first few weeks that the uh, life in the church in Corinth is a mess. And sometimes that can be a little uncomfortable, can't it? Like, you know, when you stumble upon a, a conflict or an issue of some kind and you're maybe not right in the middle of it, but now you're privy to it and that can be an uncomfortable place to be. And so, so we've just been dropped right down into Corinth in the middle of this church that is fractured with disunity. And uh, we, we, we know something about disunity, right? We've all experienced that in different ways. Uh, but for right now, we get to observe the church in Corinth. And we get to learn from their struggles, their failures. We get to learn from what Paul has to say to them about what he has seen and heard in their church. So it's a, it's a great opportunity for us. And I always like learning better from other people's uh, things than my own, right? Uh, so let's learn from the church in Corinth. And I want to connect us to last week because these two weeks are really very closely connected. And part of what Paul is doing here is he's saying your issues weren't just thrust upon you. It's not happening to you. It's you. It's you. And it's the way that you think about things, the way you think about yourself, the way you think about each other, the way you think about God and the church. So picking up in chapter 3, verse 18, this is what Paul said. We, we covered this last week. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord uh, knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God. So Paul's trying to help them connect the dots here to think about how they think and how that relates to what's happening in the church. In another one of Paul's epistles, the book of Romans, he writes this in chapter 12, verse 3, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So somehow, how we think about ourselves has a direct relationship to the way we treat the people around us. Not just about ourselves, but it's about our relationships. And so as I thought about this segment that we're going to cover this morning... I thought, how do we think rightly about ourselves? If you say to me, you need to think with sober judgment, assess yourself rightly, my first question is going to be, how do I do that? I think Paul answers that today with three different things that will really help us. The first is in your outline, it's to focus on faithfulness. Focus 
on faithfulness. Here's how Paul begins. So he said, here's how you ought to be uh, thinking about you now. This is how one ought to regard us. Speaking of himself and Apollos. You ought to think of us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So Paul is beginning to address the Corinthian view of leadership. We've been talking a lot about their culture. Uh, They viewed their leaders as celebrities, kind of as power players or movers and shakers. And basically, you just want to hook your wagon to the right one. And they're going to take you to the promised land, right? That's their view of leadership. And Paul is saying that that's completely opposite of the way that you ought to be thinking about leadership. Paul taught that uh, he and other Christians like him should be viewed as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So let's talk about those words because they're very, very descriptive. When he says servant, I, you know, I don't know what you have in mind, but that word literally in that day was a reference to the rowers at the bottom of a boat. Here's a great picture. There's Charlton Heston doing his thing. But that's who he's talking about. It is the lowliest members on the boat. Like they're not taking the boat anywhere. They're not making any decisions for anyone. They have one job, and that is to row. And whatever the captain says, they do it. No questions, no discussion. They just do it. And they are at the bottom. See the difference? Corinthians are like, man, we, we adore the celebrities. Paul says, we're at the bottom of the boat. Big difference. And then he uses this word steward. And uh, this is a reference also to a servant. But this servant has a different kind of responsibility uh, in contrast to the, the rower at the bottom of the boat. This servant is entrusted with the care of the master's house. Um, I heard a sermon years ago that uh, they called this house sitting. So think about yourself like somebody comes along and they've got this gigantic 13,000 square foot mansion and they come to you and they say, hey, we're going to be gone for three months and we want you to take care of it. So like a mixed feeling of I'm kind of excited because what fun to live in a 13,000 square foot house, but oh my gosh, I got to take care of that thing. And they're going to come back, like the owner of the house is going to come back, and I'm going to answer to them for how well I took care of their house. That's the picture here, the steward. The steward who is entrusted with something that they do not own, but they are responsible to take care of. Paul isn't the master. Jesus is. That's the connection he's making. Paul isn't free, even as an apostle, to do as he pleases or to arrange the churches so that they're what he wants them to be. He doesn't have that freedom. He says, I'm just a house sitter. I was just given this assignment by the master. And so I am trying to faithfully serve at his pleasure 
to fulfill God's will, not my own. Now, the quality of Paul's service is measured, catch this, not in terms of his personality, not in terms of his persuasiveness, not how popular he is inside or outside the church. Like none of those criteria make their way into the evaluation of Paul's stewardship. What does he say matters most to the master? Faithfulness. That's the key. Is he fulfilling the calling, the responsibility uh, what that God gave him. Now, to avoid any confusion, Paul clarifies that Christ alone is the judge of this. So this is where it's interesting in the church because we all have ideas about the way, thi- the way things ought to be done, right? And, and in some cases, one isn't necessarily right and another wrong. Sometimes it's just preferences, the way we kind of do things. But we do have to get back to who has responsibility for what and are they being faithful to carry out their responsibilities? So here's Paul's uh, comment about evaluation or judgment. He says, verse three, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any other human court. So apparently, the Corinthians have an opinion about the way Paul is doing what Paul is doing. Secondly, in fact, I do not even judge myself, Paul says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Here's the big phrase, it is the Lord who judges me. So Paul recognizes everybody's going to have a thought about the way things ought to be done. And he's not dismissing the idea that those thoughts could be discussed or considered, uh, interacted around. That's all fine. But at the end of the day, Paul answers to one. Who is that? Let me hear it. Jesus, the judge. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the judge. And Paul knows that he is accountable to him sometimes. That accountability may require him to do something that doesn't please the church, that doesn't even please his peers. He's recognizing there will be times when God may call me to do something that no one likes, but I have to, I have to follow what I believe in my heart of hearts I've been told to do by the master. A good steward lives that way all of the time, not just when it is convenient or comfortable. Now, as it relates to pastors, because Paul was a pastor, and I recognize it's, this is just one of those things that I always feel like, it it sounds self-serving, you're just going to have to trust me that I'm just trying to teach the word here, okay? So this, there's no agenda attached to this. Pastors should not be idolized, and they should not be ostracized. Okay, pastors should not be idolized or ostracized, but rather honored and respected. And I realize that can be abused. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. See, when when pastors are popular, when they're doing what everybody wants them to do, things seem to go great. There's no problem. 
but it's when pastors have to say some hard things, that's when it can get a little messy. And I think what Paul is trying to say here, because he's modeling this, he's, saying, he's gonna say some hard things to this church. And he's saying, I need you to, to see past me. I need you to see to the one that is really speaking to you. I'm just a mouthpiece, but you need to hear his words. And if you have an issue, take it up with him. Because at the end of the day, he's going to be the one who judges you, not me. Paul pulls all this together in verse 5. He says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Here's what he's doing. He's establishing, he's a servant, he's a steward. He is gonna answer to God for his faithfulness, but then he sort of puts a little parenthesis in here and says, hey, by the way, be careful about passing judgment on me because guess what? You're gonna be judged as well. When Jesus comes back, he's gonna judge all of us. And we're all going to have to answer for how we do what we do, what we think, what we say, how we relate, our faithfulness. We're all going to answer to that. So neither is better or worse. This isn't a power struggle. We're all in this together. So don't be hasty. Don't be careless about forming judgments that really belong only to Christ. Here's an application as I think about thinking rightly about ourselves on this first point. If Paul and Apollos are servants and stewards, so are we. Okay? Listen, there's no exceptions in this room. You're a servant and you're a steward. Secondly, if the apostles were required to be faithful with all that was entrusted to them, so are we. It's really important that you're faithful to do what God has called you to do. And if you say, I don't know what that is, well, then that's step one. Figure it out. Get help. Find out what it is, that, the part that God has called you to play so that you can be faithful to do it. And then lastly, if Jesus alone is their master and judge, then he is ours as well. If, if we think rightly about those things, it's going to affect the way we relate to each other, the way we treat one another, the way we go about fulfilling the mission that God has given us. Well, there's a second thing that will help us think rightly about ourselves, and that is to embrace the humility of the cross. And I think, honestly, this is the crux of the matter. This is the hardest thing of all and not just for the Corinthians, but I think for all of us. If it weren't uh, obvious already, um, Paul is gonna lay bare the deep-seated pride that is evident in Corinth. Like he keeps saying it again and again, and we're gonna see the word arrogant pop up as we go through this book. That's an important distinction that's, that's there, but it's tearing this church apart. The, the arrogance of, of this church is just pulling it into pieces. And he explains that 
as an illustration that even as an apostle and Apollos as a pastor, he's saying these things that I'm talking about, they apply to us just as much as they apply to you. That's verse six. He's saying we're, we're all equally under what is written. Now that's kind of a cryptic phrase. People don't necessarily, commentators don't really agree exactly about what that means or what it's referring to. But I think the general idea is there is a standard of truth and we don't want to say more or say less than what it says. And we want to align our lives with that as best we can. And that doesn't apply to just some of us. Part of us, it applies to all of us. Then having said that, he moves on to deflating their egos with pointed questions and biting sarcasm. Now, just as an aside, this isn't a license <laughs> that like those of you who just sarcasm sort of rolls off the tongue, this isn't your biblical justification for doing so, okay? Paul is being very intentional here. He is, he is using this uh, method to highlight their need. They are a calloused, calloused people. And led by the Holy Spirit, Paul is going to go after that. So he asks the question in verse 7. Who sees anything different in you? He's referring back to the last five verses who sees you as something other than servants and stewards who are responsible to be faithful and who are accountable to Jesus the master and judge? Who sees you as any different than us? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Then in verse 8, he, he really begins to expose what they actually thought how they saw themselves already you have all you want you don't need anything already you have become rich without us you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you verse 9 for i think that god has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. So first of all, Paul confronts their feelings of superiority. Their feelings of superiority. They view themselves as exceptional. Have you ever done that? You've been able to see the flaws in all the people around you, but somehow they don't seem quite so clear when you look in the mirror. That's how they see themselves. They are spiritually self-made and Paul is thinking, how in the world, given that you have believed in the gospel, remember these are Christians, how could you come to the conclusion that you're now self-sufficient? That you have somehow arrived, and, and not only that, how have you arrived and yet we're nowhere close experientially, Paul's asking. Paul punctures effectually the inflated bag of false pride. Then next he dismantles um, what's, what's called a false triumphalism. And here's the idea. It's, and I know I'm using big fancy words, but that's what it's called. Real, unrealized eschatology. The idea is there's this end time when Jesus is coming back. We talk about it all the time around here. And we say when he comes back, he's going to make all things new. Everything's going to be as God intended. 
But until then, we live in a broken, sin-wrecked world, right? So these folks, if you were to, to listen the way that they talk about life, if you saw the way that they actually lived, you would think Jesus already came back. Man, they're living the high life. They got everything they want. It's comfort and convenience and ease and popularity, power. They've got it all. Paul is trying to speak to that and say, that's, that's delusional. You have created this fantasy world for yourself, which is nothing like what Jesus and all of his followers have said it is like until he returns. Paul described, when he's talking about their experience, he says, we're, we're considered last of all, sentenced to death, a spectacle to the world, angels, and men. Okay, literally the image here, when, when Rome would go off to war and they would return, there would be this long, glorious parade. And it would start with the most important people right there at the front of the line. And there's a big celebration. Everybody comes out. And I don't know if they, had, they didn't have fireworks and confetti and all that. But it was, a, it was a huge party and parade. And finally, at the very end of it, were those who had been conquered. And they were mocked, derided, abused. That, that people would celebrate the lowliness of these uh, folks that were captured. But it didn't stop there. They would take them to the public place, the Colosseum, and they would sit back and be entertained while they watched those who had been captured fight vicious animals to their death. That's the kind of experience Paul says he's having while the Corinthians are living the high life. He says, there's something wrong with this picture because I know Jesus hasn't come back and I know that my experience is nothing like yours. I wonder why that is. And here's the bottom line. It has everything to do with what they stand for. Do you remember back in chapter one, Paul said, we have one commitment, one commitment, and that is to preach Christ and him crucified. Remember that? That's why he's last. That's why he is ridiculed by the world. That is why he is sentenced to death. That is why he is a spectacle to be mocked by all of humanity. But Paul isn't finished. He keeps going. He wants to make sure that they don't miss this important point. Look down in verse 10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. You can hear the sarcasm. We are weak, but you guys are strong. You are held in honor. The world loves you. We are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. That was disgusting to a Corinthian. When reviled, 
we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Look at this contrast. How do you see yourself? And how does the world see you? And those are, those are tough questions to ask and answer. But listen, if we can see ourselves rightly with sober judgment, it affects how we treat one another, how we live and operate as a church, how we go about fulfilling our mission. Scum and refuse mean exactly what they sound like. And here's what those words highlight. They, they highlight how repulsive true Christ followers are to the culture. Remember, guys, <laughs> the gospel and the cross, those are offensive. Those are not, I, it's just been so sanitized and there's nothing wrong with this, but the little gold crosses that hang around our necks, listen, that was a place of bloody, gory, repulsive execution. It's a great reminder to us of the love that God has for us. But don't think about it for a minute. That is repulsive to the world. We're saying, hey, guess where life is found? On that bloody cross. And they look at us and go, whatever, man. You can have it. No thanks. It also highlights the extent to which true Christ followers are willing to endure the abuse of a world at war with God. So Paul is saying, hey, Corinthians, you came to Christ. I was there. I, I led you with the gospel. But somewhere along the way, you took a more comfortable path and you stopped standing for the truth. This is the way of the cross. And I love what Pastor Steve Lawson says. The high price of standing for the gospel has never been marked down. It's as real today as it's ever been. You, you may not be paraded through the streets and executed in a coliseum. But you will face abuse of some kind if you will take a stand for Christ. By the way, I can't go into a long explanation here, but you, I hope you can see how this demolishes the idea of a prosperity gospel. I mean, what foolishness. That somehow knowing Christ makes life easy. Nothing could be further from the truth. Well, Paul didn't intend to break their spirit. He says in verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I love how Paul, he said some hard things that stings, but he comes alongside them, he puts his arm around him and says, now remember, I'm your father. 
not your Father in heaven. I'm, your, I'm the one who led you to Christ with the gospel. And that, that is the context of this whole conversation that we're having. I love you. And so I need to say hard things to you, but I want you to hear it in that context. He says in verse 15, though you have countless guides in Christ, guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. You just have one. I led you to Christ. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. Verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. That's a, man, that's a stout statement, isn't it? In verse 17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church, not just in Corinth, but everywhere. Every church I've gone to, this is what I have said to them. We preach Christ and him crucified and that defines all of life for me. And Paul says, in light of that, do what I do. Follow my example. The word there is mimic. And this is the third thing that will really help us think rightly about ourselves. If we'll mimic Christ-following mentors, that will change the way we see things. Change the way we think about all of life. It's from this context that Paul urges them to imitate. He says, he's going to say this again in chapter 11, verse 1. So we'll, we'll probably revisit this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul isn't pointing to himself as like super Christian. Like do everything the way I do it. He, he's trying to say, listen, I have to get up every single day and choose to follow Christ. I'm doing the best that I can. I do it imperfectly. It is still by grace through faith as it has always been. Just follow that example. Watch how I do it. Ask questions. In fact, that's, that's part of what I thought is missing oftentimes in discipleship today. And I'm speaking in broad terms in the church as a whole, but oftentimes people are led to Christ, so they entrust their lives to Christ, and then they're just left to figure it out on their own. And listen, nobody figures it out on their own. There isn't a thing that I know that I didn't learn from someone. That's just the way that it works. That's spiritual multiplication, it just gets passed from one to another, to another, to another. And so there's two responsibilities there. There's the job of the mentor, and that's the, the one who says, I'm going to be equipped, I'm going to be attentive, I'm going to look for those needs, I'm going to make myself available, and then I'm going to pour everything I've got out for the good of another. That's the side of the mentor. On the side of the protege, you know what? You don't have to be smart. You don't have to show your stuff. It's amazing how many times I've been in conversations and I feel like someone's trying to prove to me how, what a great Christian they are and how much they know. And I just want to say, easy. You don't have to know anything. Just listen, learn, ask questions, watch. And here's the deal. You guys need to hear this. That's exactly what I did. I'm not just some super smart guy. I'm not better than anybody else. I'm not exceptional. Neither is Jeff, neither is any elder or staff person in this church. 
we all, years and years ago, we just started following people around, asking them questions, watching what they're doing, taking their correction and their input, their insight, taking notes, praying, thinking, reading. Like, that, that's the deal. We all got to do it. And here's what I can promise you. If you will do that, 30 years from now, there will be more fruit than you could ever imagine in your life and in the lives of those whom you will influence. If you're looking for a mentor, here's the picture right here. You're looking for a humble servant of Christ. You're looking for a faithful steward of the resources and responsibilities entrusted to them. You're looking for a person who exemplifies genuine dependence upon God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. That's what you're looking for if you want a mentor. You're looking for one who is eager to show and tell the gospel, and it just it's on the tip of their tongue all the time. And finally, you're looking for someone who is willing to have you follow them as they strive imperfectly, by grace, through faith, to follow Christ. If you find somebody like that, man, get on board. Go to them and just say, can I just spend some time with you? Can I just be around you as you do life? You don't have to do life exactly like they do it. You just need to understand why they do life the way they do it. And that will change your life. And you'll have something to give away. And I, I love that Jeff said this earlier, and this is how I wanted to kind of wrap things up. It has been proven true throughout history that you cannot give away what you do not possess. But you cannot possess what you have not received. And you will not receive what you do not think you need. Thus the need for great humility for all of us. Every single person in this community of faith. It's interesting that Paul comes to the end of this segment, verse 18. He says, you know, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk. Lots of fancy talkers. The kingdom of God consists in power. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? I just love this. Like Paul... I don't think he's like beating his chest and acting all tough. I think he's just saying, listen, here's what I know. <laughs> In God's kingdom, you can talk a great talk, but it's going to become clear whether or not the power of God is active in your life. And I'm not talking about signs and wonders. Yes, that may be true, but I'm just talking about the evidence of Christ in you. That's going to become obvious regardless of what you say. I, I thought about, I don't know if this is a great connection or not, but here's what came to mind. You know, yesterday, if you were following the news, 
there was a big rally scheduled in our town. And there was a lot of fear and concern and there was a lot of big talk. And the the response of the church, Big C Church, was beautiful because we didn't start mouthing off. We started to pray. And we asked God to intervene, to protect, to invade that whole moment. It was canceled. Yeah! And you know what? We can dismiss that and go, oh, well, you know, just kind of one of those crazy things or whatever. Listen, I believe that was a direct answer to the prayer of God's people who humbly asked him to do for them what they could not do for themselves. Praise God for that. That's a way of life for the Christian, for the one who is following Christ the way Paul describes here. Lots of big talk, but we're looking for God's power in and through his people. All right? Take a moment and uh, maybe here's the question. How are you currently thinking about yourself? And it, you know, wherever you are in that, whatever it is that you're thinking, let's just start there. You may be in a really bad place. You may be doing okay, but just invite God into that place and, and pray. Say, Lord, I want to think rightly about myself. I want to have sober judgment about who I am in Christ. And then I want you to do a work in me however you please and make me willing to uh, follow along. So take a moment, pray to the Lord, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you this morning about a next right step, all right?